Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Technology, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, AMT's Technology Analyst. Steve, Manufacturing Technology Analyst. That's the first time I fumbled <laughs> on it in a while. It's only beginning the year. Don't worry, we got a few more episodes we can get to before I start fumbling then. Uh, how, how are you doing today, Steve? Doing great. It's been a productive day. Good. This is uh, the second time. I've been on uh, camera today, so <laughs> just getting used to the new norm, I guess. I've got some bad news. This is the last last time I'll bring up remote control cars, probably for a while. <laughs> and the oh, re- no. <laughs> the reason for that is I broke my new RC car already. <laughs> is it catastrophic? Is it repairable? I mean, everything with this RC car is repairable. So I was driving at a baseball field or some diamond nearby. Obviously, it's, everything's closed because it's uh, cold outside. It's wintertime. Um, I got a little close to the fence and I was driving parallel to the fence and then my driver's side front wheel caught uh, one of the uh, holes in the fence and just gotcha. ripped the, almost ripped the entire wheel off the suspension. So oh, I, was, man. I was going full throttle. I feel like I was going like 35, 40 miles an hour <laughs> next to that thing. So, And this was like the fence of a baseball diamond? Yeah, yeah. So like the... Uh, where where you could watch right on the uh, um, gotcha gotcha from, uh, I, I, home base uh, and uh, first base ripping that thing around a uh, the infield must be really fun because you know it's smooth enough yep. but also soft to the point where it's like it's got to be the perfect two scale uh, replication of is that word it's got to be the the perfect two scale uh, kind of simulation of what you know, a scaled down rally stage would look like yeah. with exception yeah. to a rally stage being really narrow and right. having a lot of trees, you got like a <laughs> wide open field, yeah. but it's gotta be like that, that dusty grit yes. of like yeah. a gravel rally stage or something. It's a lot of fun to slide around the infield. Cool. Yeah. So all the plastic pieces are obliterated from that front uh, left side. So I've ordered a couple uh, some metallic components. Not that I need metallic. It's I told my friend that if I started upgrading anything or if I replaced any components, I'd buy, see if I could buy metallic components so they have aluminum replacements for the front suspension. Yeah. So it'll break again if I put the aluminum parts in, but uh, it'll be it'll be a fun, fun challenge. getting Either it metal up. or carbon fiber. There's no looking <laughs> back. No plastics. No plastic. All right, let's unless. Get- Unless, Unless it's uh, like 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 a uh, biodegradable plastic, <laughs> which I'm sure some people would shake their head to, but I feel like that's the direction plastic's going right yeah, now. Yeah, I wouldn't mind that. Let's hop into an article, Ben. Let's kick it off, Steve. Speaking of cars, well, not RC cars, but like cars and car parts. Real cars. Edelbrock is moving out of California. What? Edelbrock? Give me the Edelbrock, scanner. you know, all of, all of the people who are in the car industry or, or, or just car enthusiasts in general... They know the name Edelbrock. Um, you know, I've never purchased anything that was Edelbrock because mostly Edelbrock caters to uh, the American muscle crowd. Right. But uh, they've since like really expanded to to the European car market and of course the JDM Bros. Sure. But um, like like there's 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 a Edelbrock supercharger kit for my car, mm-hmm. for example. But anyway, Edelbrock's been based out of California forever now. And they're moving out. And, you know, some people may see that as, oh, no, this is bad news. It's terrible. But it's actually good news in in a few different respects. Because, well, let's first, you know, it may sound negative because, oh, man, can they not afford, like, to to 
base all of their operations out of California anymore. Right. And that's actually not the case. It has wow. nothing to do with finances, even though finances might help because we know, you know, when companies move out of an expensive state that are manufacturing things, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's really helpful to the finances clears up a lot of things. The workers are happier because now they don't have to pay an arm and a leg <laughs> to, to live there or deal with a terrible commute. Cause right. I can't imagine uh, doing the commute in California. Then again, we're not in the best commuter friendly <laughs> area anyway, but uh, we're working from home. So there's no commute. It's from the bedroom to uh, this desk. That's um, fair. But, um, but another reason why, you know, uh, a company like Edelbrock would move out of California is California is pretty strict when it comes to, automotive regulations, right, whether right. it's emissions or safety, California is a strict one. And I'm not going to knock on California too much because at the end of the day, you know, I'd rather be caught driving recklessly in California than I would Virginia because mm -hmm. in our state, if you're doing more than 80 above the speed limit, you know, you could actually be in jail for three days. Yep. It's, it's, it's wild, but that's true. That's why a lot of car enthusiasts actually avoid our state of Virginia. <laughs> but, uh, California is not too much better in that, you know, they've got really tight uh, emissions regulations for like their fuel cars, fuel systems and yeah. whatnot. Like they've got to meet a lot of EPA standards uh, that are, or I think it's the carb regulations that right. are even stricter than the federal EPA regulations. Yeah. But um, so that, that really puts a, a hamper or really puts a, uh, um, you know, it, it holds back tuners from doing what they could do. But at the same time, you know, I wouldn't want too many people driving around me catalyst. Um, but <laughs> that uh, smells bad. It, it, you know, but for another example, California, California, you can actually be pulled over if your car's too loud. Like if you have a performance <laughs> exhaust on it, right. a cop can legitimately pull you over write you a ticket just because they think your exhaust is above 95 decibels mm. or whatever. Sure. And then you have to see a state ref state referee <laughs> who will actually hook your car up to like listening devices to verify that you are within or out of spec. And then if you're out of spec, then they can <laughs> find you a minimum of like a thousand dollars and require that like your car is fixed by this date yeah. or it's impounded and crushed. It's, it's wild. Yeah. California's not friendly. So that could be another reason why Edelbrock is moving out, but it is not. Oh. It's actually a great reason sure. why Edelbrock is moving out of California. It's because SpaceX is hogging all of the manufacturing or the machinist talent in California. <laughs> SpaceX is like hiring That's funny. machinists, both both like, you know, beginner yep. and highly experienced machinists left and right. And because, you know, Elon Musk is crushing it right now. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, Edelbrock can't keep up. That's awesome. As, as awesome as Edelbrock has been doing, because, you know, they're commonly thought of as an aftermarket car park company. Sure. Um, they've actually made a lot of parts and, and kits uh, or systems over the years mm -hmm. that uh, integrations, that's our word, uh, over the years that have been implemented by OEMs. Okay. Like, like they're, they're actually a manufacturer of OEM spec parts now. That's cool. So there's a good chance, you know, there's a lot of enthusiast cars out there that actually have uh, U.S. made, like with the Lotus Evora, mm -hmm. uh, an English sports car, almost entirely made in England. Right. But uh, to be competitive around the world, they decided that the the Toyota Camry power plant, the the engine and drive uh, engine and transmission that is used in the Lotus Evora, um, 
which is made in Japan, isn't quite powerful enough for a premium sports car. <laughs> so what do they do? They supercharged it. Right. And the cars that are sold in the U.S. actually use Edelbrock supercharger kits. Cool. The supercharger is sourced by Eaton, right. but the integration is done by Edelbrock, which is really awesome. And uh, Edelbrock is doing great. They're crushing it yep. right now. Yep. They've, they've, they're making OEM parts. And they're hiring more machinists, just not in California, because <laughs> SpaceX is getting all the machinists. So it's it's great to be a machinist right now in, in California. Demand. Yeah, yeah, and that is interesting because when I hear about companies moving, you, I normally hear about them moving by the first two reasons that you talked about: either financial or the some regulation that pushes them out. Yeah, like, it has been occurring a lot in the firearm industry uh, recently. Absolutely, uh, but Colton this, FN. Yeah, exactly. The reason why FN is crushing coal, FN, they're, they're both they're both supplying the same contracts right. they're both right. both companies are making the have the tdp the technical data package for the m4a1 and the m16a4 i think is the one that they're on right. to make those for our armed forces and uh fn is making way more profit <laughs> even though they're paying colt who owns the ip to the tdp right. the technical data package um they own colt owns the 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 technical data packages and FN has to pay royalties to Colt, but FN is making more money off of the rifles supplied to the military because FN's produce man doing all of their manufacturing in Columbia, South, uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Right. Where's uh, Colt? They're called Hartford horsies for a reason. They're in Hartford, <laughs> Connecticut, and it is expensive to live up there. That's yeah, where people yeah. who are successful in New York go to retire. Right. <laughs> That's a challenge. And, uh, you know, I've been uh, hearing a couple of things on, say, shifts in, uh, like, high-tech areas. So Austin is starting to grow as a, another hotspot where people are shifting from uh, the West Coast to Austin, which isn't that far, to be honest. I mean, yeah. Austin's been fairly interesting, and in I think they're uh, growing that uh, talent pool there. But uh, I think it was the end of last year also that Miami started actively recruiting companies, big tech firms, to start positioning or setting up uh, bases there also. So I find it very interesting that, you know, SpaceX isn't doing anything differently. They're just gobbling up employees. But Edelbrock's feeling the pain of another company hiring all this talent when, in general, it's fairly difficult to find machinists. So I'm wondering if they move also and what are they going to do to continue uh, developing that talent locally? I'm curious of what their plan is. So that'll be very interesting to see. That is going to be really curious. You could see California actually doing a huge push um, statewide for like in the public education system oh, true true you know how can we get students into manufacturing yeah. that's actually a really great opportunity for everybody absolutely and california is a big manufacturing hub right along the west coast yeah. you've got tons of uh casting houses that are there and you've got all of aerospace that's further up north so you, you do have a lot of manufacturing so cool. centric and on the west coast there so that's also awesome. a bright that's future cool. over there Maybe Just I hopefully would hopefully they don't catch keep catching fire. Or they fall in the ocean. <laughs> I wouldn't stop. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live there. I need my loud cars. <laughs> yeah, not, not, think, oh, not that my car is loud. It's gotta be so nice. Like like I know I know some people over here, like when they buy used cars, they'd be like, Man, is it a California car? Because if it's a California car, it's sweet. Because it hasn't been exposed to like salt or yeah, it's well taken care of nasty road conditions. That's fair. 
All right, Steve, the next article I have is about uh, machine vision system. So uh, Fanuc wrote nice. an article, David Bruce, the engineering manager at Fanuc, uh, provided an article to AMT, and he talks about innovations in machine vision for the manufacturing industry. Uh, so it's a very interesting uh, look at the vision systems that are being integrated into uh, uh, robots and uh, automation equipment. Uh, so he kicks it off to talk about briefly, uh, you know, 2D digital systems. Uh, used to detect, locate, measure, and classify objects with an image. So that in itself kind of sets the framework of what uh, machine vision systems can do. Uh, So the first thing it's doing is just taking a picture of the object, and then it's um, measuring and detecting, separating it, all everything within the image itself. Um, And in the article, he has a couple of videos that he links to. One is doing uh, something, doing real-time 100% inspection of an object. Uh, oh, wow. And the speed it's doing it is a thousand parts per minute, so it gives you an idea of what they're doing and how fast they're able to do that. And and I found that very very fascinating, especially when you know we look at uh, automation equipment in manufacturing like machine tending, um, uh, conveyors, and um, some custom automation equipment. It's fairly slow paced, right? It's it's kind of plugging yeah. along, it's going as fast as the rest of the machinery around it is. So it's it's moving along, but it's not like blink of the eye fast. But this guy mentions a thousand parts per minute is absurdly fast how fast it, things are being inspected. So I thought it was very, very fascinating. Uh, and he goes very in depth on like the different types of cameras that are involved. So he talks about one thing is a hyperspectral camera, you know, until it looks at almost the inf- entire spectrum of light uh, that could be mm-hmm. 3D systems, passive and active. Uh, and, you know, when you read through the article, for me, the, there's two big takeaways uh, on the, um, from the article. One is, probably three actually. One is the importance of light for machine vision systems. So light and the type of structure, the color, the type of uh, light it's being reflected on, those are all actually very, very important to understand in designing and picking out that equipment in the beginning. So much so that you may actually have to build enclosures or yeah, you know, close off any of the ambient light to define what kind of light that you want in that vision system. So I thought that was very interesting. Wow. Um, so, if, I mean, it depends on how broad the system is. So if you're in an open environment, obviously you're going to have a different camera than if you could have something that's fully enclosed and that limits your capability too, or that may define some of your capability, I should say. So that was very fascinating. That's, so that's one. Um, the second is the integration of machine learning and deep learning. So towards the end of the article, he talks about um, some of the, uh, bits of uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and gets a gets into a real use case of uh, deep convolutional neural networks. And I'll just leave it there because I can't explain it yeah. better than he can. He, <laughs> okay. It's not useful for us to <laughs> talk you. about a podcast. Um, I'll I'll probably fall asleep if I try and do that. But the article is actually very well written. He goes over a background and a, and um, a competition that uh, is used in machine learning of um, yeah how fast they can process something. And there was a new technique that was developed where they basically crushed any of the previous times. So that's very interesting on the the use case of uh, machine learning and also the impact of it, right? So yeah, a lot of people kind of understand the idea of machine learning, but there's a cost in processing power and computational need that's required to process something. That's why you're not gonna take a 4K image and try and parse through that. There's uh, much smaller resolutions that are needed based on what they're trying to inspect. So that's why you often see like 720p cameras or even 1080p, 1080 uh, uh, resolution might be like the ultra high end when you don't need 
that in a lot of cases. So I thought right, like 4K and 8K. Yeah, exactly. You're you're not going to be needing that high resolution in a lot of the manufacturing cases. So yeah, I thought those was, was wow. a very good article, very well written about um, some of the different technologies that are available, how the cameras are used, and the third takeaway is. You better ask someone if you're interested in getting a vision system. <laughs> to be honest, there's so much information. It's, I, I feel like as a small business, it's useful to understand the overall landscape so you can ask probing questions. That's the intent of this yeah. article is to help you inform, to help guide the discussion, to help prepare your factory that you're, when you're ready to talk to an integrator, um, to have certain things prepared. Like what are the objects that you're going to measure? How well uh, conditioned are the objects? What kind of environment is are the objects going to be? And how fast am I going to process this? Um, those are all preparation, preparational questions that you can that need to be answered before you get to the integrator. But in the end, you know, relying on the advice of the experts um, and, out, and asking probing questions: What other options are available? If I go this camera versus that camera, wh- how does that change the environment? But man, there's so much involved in specking out the machine vision systems that you know I feel I found it very difficult for a small business to take that full burden on themselves unless they're looking at a long-term journey to experiment with different systems in the future, you know? Can I be honest with you? When when we ordered the X-Arm 7 yeah. for the test bed, yep. for the AMD's technology test bed, um, Zoe from uh, uh, U-Factory right. called me up, and we, we actually had to schedule a phone appointment, and I spoke with Zoe and some of the other Chinese engineers that – um, were developing and assembling these uh, robots. Uh-huh. And based on each customer's use case, um, they would ask what, you know, different parameters that you were looking for uh, with your robot. And so I, this probably was one of the reasons why it took us so long to get our robot in the first place. But when she said, like, like she would ask questions like, uh, what kind of, accuracy in repeatability are you right. looking for are right. you looking for sub millimeter or like sub um you know thou right, and, right. and and i'd be like what give me whatever's the most accurate you can do <laughs> <laughs> like i had no need yeah. for any of that stuff but right. i was like dude like if it's the same cost give me the like the most accurate thing possible right but uh, yeah, there's some lessons to be learned there. But and to be fair, the parallel um, is to digital manufacturing, right? So if you're not fully informed in digital manufacturing, you'll say, "Just give me all the data," right? So yeah. like in your case, there's probably a trade-off of speed versus accuracy, right? So if I want the, yeah. something faster, I probably can handle something with a wider tolerance That's, range. So and whether that speed is uh, shipping time or not, <laughs> you know, how quickly can they get it to you? So he's just give me some parts. That's all I want. <laughs> but like, you know, that's like, I'm glad they didn't talk about the vision system right. that came right. with the, uh, the robot because, or rather that we had to wait another six months for, for it to arrive. <laughs> uh, Cause of course they didn't show up at the same time, but um, like not like thinking about it. Like if, if they had asked me, do you want a 720p camera or a 1080p camera? The lessons learned now, now that I've like gone through the first part of it, it's like, well, what do I need? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I don't need any of it because right. we're running a test bed. We're not actually making parts that we have to get out the door to make a profit. Um, we're, we're doing experiments. And I was like, I don't know what I need, but 
why why would somebody only why would a 720p camera be good enough when right you know there are your 4k cameras available and whatnot yep. Yep. so that that's more of like a question i would have for you i don't i i wouldn't know that and uh, yeah <laughs> Figure out what you need first. Exactly. It's the same thing that applies to uh, like, you know, the digital thread. And like, if you're exactly. going to implement MT connect, you know, when you think, okay, when, when, when Sharab would uh, ask me like, okay, what, what data do you need off of this machine? Be like, give me all the data. <laughs> yeah. That is not what you want to say. That is not what you want. You got to clog. I your just want all stuff. five axes <laughs> and to whether, and to know whether or not it's turned on. <laughs> Absolutely. See, what's our next article? So the next article I got here, this was a fun additive uh, article I found, and it is from 3D Printing Industry. Uh, GE Research awarded 14 million, it's actually 14.3 million, to 3D print a portable device that produces water out of thin air. Out of thin air. Sounds really sci-fi and fantasy. And so naturally it was like, okay, and it's got 3D printing in it right. and it's working with the DOD. Let's see what it's all up about. And um, basically, so the DOD works with DARPA, if not DARPA, I don't know how the relationship is. I don't know if DARPA is like a company that just exclusively contracts with the DOD, but I know DARPA and the DOD work really tight hand in hand. And DARPA has this, um, this, this program called uh, atmospheric water extraction program the mm-hmm. awe program i don't know if they call it awe behind closed <laughs> doors but it would seems fitting um but uh anyway ge was a towards this program the atmospheric water extraction program um ge was recently awarded by darpa th- you know well through DARPA by the DOD, $14.3 million for a four-year project that GE calls the Air to Water, or (laughs) Air to Water um, project. Um, But anyway, they've basically been awarded that much money for over four years to um, develop and design a device that can be 3D printed or additively manufactured that um, can be deployed to an area and it can pull water out of the atmospheric air around us and supply drinking, clean drinking water to um, let's say a hundred, I think they mentioned 150 soldiers at like a a foreign forward operating base. Cool. And it sounds great. And I was reading the article and I was writing up the blurb for the weekly tech report last night. And then it hits me. I was like, dude, the DOD, (laughs) uh, which has this budget provided by us, the taxpayers. um, And the DOD is paying GE. I'm not, I'm going to be nice to GE. I'm not going to mention them. They're playing DARPA first and DARPA's paying GE. Yeah. 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 Let's blame DARPA first. A lot of middlemen here. They're spending 14, almost $15 million yep. of taxpayer money to uh, <laughs> what essentially they're doing is they're just spending $15 million over four years uh, to just send some bloke down to their local Walmart to yeah. buy the cheapest uh, uh, dehumidifier they can find <laughs> and tear it down and figure out how they're going to 3D print each component and be like, 
yeah, we're just going to send this over. (laughs) This is it. We did it. Money, please. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Yeah. And it sounds a little ridiculous at first, but it's like, think about it from like um, a military standpoint. Right. Like, like, sure, sure. You know, it's going to be packaged up by a bunch of corporate executives as, as this awesome forward thinking device. That means that we're saving so much of the taxpayers money because now we don't have to ship gallons and and tons of drinking water overseas to these forward operating bases. And it's like, okay, so now the soldiers aren't going to get any water whatsoever. (laughs) And when they're being uh, interviewed by uh, the BBC and Al Jazeera, it was like, so you guys don't have any water. And it's like, and uh, the American soldiers just going to be like, yep, Biden's not sending us any clean drinking water. (laughs) They gave us this broken 3D printer instead (laughs) that we're supposed to uh, print our water, apparently. That's funny. I don't mean to pick on Biden. Sure. You know, it is. That's how it's going to go. That's, that's how it's going to go. That's exactly how it's going. And four years from now, we'll have the same thing that we have now, which is empty set of hands. <laughs> but it is. So the Department of Defense, especially, um, uh, you know, we've talked about uh, some of the additive experiments that the Army has been doing. Um, and the Army is a little behind compared to, like, the Navy, I think, and some of maybe the Air Force. Because when yeah. the, the Army prints, like, a... Uh, a, a sighting tool versus <laughs> the air force does it like a, a wrench a wrench yes. to to i so oh my god i'm glad you actually you have the up. wrench i uh one of my rifles has magpul sights yeah magpul g- sends you this wrench to adjust the sight and this is this <laughs> is the a, same a, a front post right uh sight adjustment tool yeah yeah, and so, they're spending so much money just to 3D print this. Those for those of you listening and uh, not able to see Steve's video, it's basically a, a butterfly. It's a T-handled tool. A, a T-handle with a castle on the end that uh, allows you to adjust the front post. Fits in the palm of my hand. <laughs> but it, I'm pretty sure this is injection molded. <laughs> yeah. but, so the uh, defense is trying to move additive to uh, point of use, basically at the forward operating base. So whether it be a ship, whether it be a, a forward... Uh, um, airfield and the army's case a forward operating base um the the, the front side post is a interesting example that they chose for some random reason that maybe uh something on a tank or uh something more productive yeah. would have been great but whatever they did it so the idea of them having additive equipment at a base makes a lot of sense and the fact that they're doing right sustainment activity is great the idea that ge is going to puff their chest trying to extract water out of air on a large scale to fee to support 150 people is kind of a t- large nugget to chew on, but strategically it makes a lot of sense. I don't know what will actually happen, but I don't know. Man. Every soldier is going to have a 3d printed dehumidifier. <laughs> it's the future. Hopefully it's every soldier. It's the future. A high, excuse me, a high efficiency dehumidifier. And I don't mean to sound like I'm talking a bunch of smack at the end of the day, our industry, the manufacturing industry is doing everything right. Additive is here. And it, they're doing everything right. I just wish there was a little bit more thought that went into uh, uh, the Department of Defense and their implementation of additive. Like, give soldiers a little bit more credit and water, for that matter. But, uh, but like, you know, like, what what else could you do with additive? I'm just thinking about, like, you know, um, think about, like, uh, uh, wipes in a suppressor. Sure. How, like, like polymer or uh, rubber wipes in a suppressor they, they like wear out right, after right. like a few shots right and let's say you have some special forces who are like you know beyond enemy lines and they need to replace the 
the internal baffle system of a suppressor because sure. they just went out in an op. The suppressor is shot out. Why not use an additive machine to print a new internal lattice structure mm -hmm. that will more efficiently absorb the expanding gas and the, the vibrations from that sound generated right. from that expanding gas right. to absorb that pressure and, and, and thus making a suppressor user serviceable sure. right. with a 3D printer. Right, yeah. That would be putting, you know, using their noodle, but sure. no, they're 3D printing the dehumidifier. <laughs> to be fair, the, the packaging of for this. For $15 million. <laughs> the packaging of this content is, is a little rough. I wish they didn't tell me about it. They shouldn't have published anything. They shouldn't make it top secret. I can't. It's hard not to be mocked for that kind of project. I, I think I think the right headline here was uh, the military, not the military. I don't want to slam the mill. Sound like I'm the DOD <laughs> is still trying to figure out how to use additive. Fair. That's the proper That's headline. The proper headline. And speaking of which, the last article I have is about additive. So we have a nice a, an article from New York Assessments that uh, they provided to us, and it's a new way of thinking, sizing up the shift in additive manufacturing. So we've had this journey about the business side of additive manufacturing, and to your point, Steve, you know the last uh, thing you talked about was kind of the idea behind additive and how to best leverage it. And I think people are still trying to put their hands around how do I make the best out of this tool. The article talks about you know a round peg in a square hole, which is actually fairly true in additive's case, where you know replacing it for traditional manufacturing processes is not the best application for it. Sure, it can be done as a, you know, shortfall if you need to print something versus, you know, machine it. You can you can do the same shape, but you're not harvesting the true value of a unique design, less weight, unique materials, being able to do this in a, on a tabletop potentially versus, you know, a factory. So there's a lot of um nuances that are people are trying to wrestle with and you know to be fair the ge case is a very interesting application where they're trying to understand the nuances of do i need metallics maybe do i need plastics what is the whole hopefully they're uh, attacking the infrastructure the digital infrastructure of trying to print at a ford operating base but for 15 million they're probably not going to do that but that's a different different problem um so you talked about you know what's plagued implementation additive um is mainly inflexible corporate structures you know the idea of a paradigm shift within a culture is when you're looking at additive is really what's needed. Um, and of course, he, he highlights two, two approaches, right, to uh, help in that um, cultural change. One is, uh, is he labels as earning the, uh, earning the technology. And by that, I think he means by experimenting with it, doing some research, doing prototyping, uh, getting your feet wet is probably another uh, term that can be used that um, the idea of absorbing the knowledge right away for additive as opposed to I'm going to go start this journey and the end state would be another journey that kicks off is really what you're looking for in additive, right? It's a set of series of incremental journeys. It's not a, a single stop. It's not, I can't buy a CNC machine and then learn 80% of it right away. It's, I'm going to start this thing, learn a few things, and that's going to progress me to learn a bunch of other things. And I think that's the first step of earning the uh, technology. And the second one is kind of connected to uh, implementing machine vision and automation in certain cases, turning to the experts. Um, additive has been around for a fairly long time. There's a lot of yeah. people that are 
experts in the field, both on the business implementation side and the technology. So being able to bring those two together, uh, understanding your weaknesses first and turning to the people that you need to for your business. So if you need business uh, understanding or understand the business applications of additive, or if you want to understand the technical side of it, then those are different approaches that you can reach out to. And, you know, taking a, a shift at the leadership level at a company is kind of what's needed for a value add implementation of additive. And uh, the, uh, the article does a pretty good job of taking a step back and looking at, yeah, you couldn't say, hey, des- manufacturing engineer, design engineer, additive should be a new thing. That's a starting point, but that mentality has to shift all the way up to the top uh, management layers. Yeah. So I thought that's interesting, you know, and to be fair, you know, the government's doing its fair share of the door on defense. They're experimenting. Yeah. I wish they would have do better projects than uh, a, a wrench for a, a siding tool on a uh, M249, but got to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, the next step from going to a wrench would be a high efficiency uh, dehumidifier, which is actually <laughs> like, you know, now that I've calmed down of, uh, you know, missing out on my four, $15 million dollars. <laughs> that uh it's, it's actually a great idea and it's yeah, really yeah. cool it is. um <laughs> yeah I, it's actually and it would save in the long run it would save taxpayers uh a lot of money because we wouldn't have to worry about floating the bill for that uh that logistics bill of shipping so much water overseas yeah i mean to be fair they'll shuffle the money around it'll still cost the same <laughs> Yeah, you're right. It won't reflect on us at all. (laughs) So, Steve, where can they find more info about us? amtnews.org slash subscribe. Check it out and uh, join us in our next episode. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Welcome, Ben. Boop.